Hey, it's Big Joe for Absolute Comfort, your trusted independent American Standard Air dealer. And owner Chris Wedekin sells the Mitsubishi Electric Mini Split, a great option for heating and cooling where ductwork can't be installed. If you have one of those homes that has baseboard heat or electric heat, ceiling cable heat, these can be specifically designed for those houses because in those houses it's very difficult to have them do all the construction and remodeling that goes with adding ductwork into those types of homes. Find out more by going to absolutecomfort.org. Absolute Comfort is your trusted independent American Standard Air Mitsubishi Electric Elite Ductless Pro Dealer. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is the Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIBC. And good afternoon and welcome to the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're pleased to be with you. Turns out it's a rather beautiful day out there. Starting to warm up a little bit and the sunshine dramatically better than yesterday. My God, what was that? I, uh, I, I stepped into uh, an establishment to smoke a cigar about 6.30 or so and walked out and there was an inch and a half, two inches of snow on my car. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And uh, at any rate, uh, very much nicer. That's Indiana, as we know, in the uh, late winter, uh, what a lot of people here call a fool's spring. Yeah, that'll do it to you, especially when uh, it's well, close to 70 last one, well, last Wednesday. A lot of saw a lot of motorcycles out. But in the meantime, we've got a lot to talk about in uh in the General Assembly in particular, and uh, some bills that, that are moving forward, but some bills that are not. And that's extremely important. You know, every year in the General Assembly, you know, one of, and one of the reasons I formed the 2A Project was to have a presence, have a voice, uh, to represent Hoosier gun owners and be there in the General Assembly, both trying to promote and get past pro-Second Amendment bills. You know, a leading example of that was constitutional carry last year, which we finally got done after 10 long years. Uh, but also important bills that we've, we've passed into law. And, and, and the list is long. And sometimes, you know, when we get frustrated on something like constitutional carry, where it took us way too long to get that passed. There were a lot of states that uh, I wouldn't necessarily call as pro-Second Amendment as Indiana, who passed it long before we did. And it was because leadership primarily in the, in the, in the Indiana Senate didn't support it. Uh, but we got over that hurdle. But uh, in the past, notwithstanding when we get frustrated, we need to realize how many incredibly great bills we've had passed into law here in Indiana that I really think puts us, now that we have constitutional carry, I think it puts us very near the top in terms of, of pro-2A states as far as how guns are regulated, how gun owners are regulated. I really put our laws up against uh, about anyone's. You know, people talk about pro-gun states like Texas. I hear this all the time. Oh, well, you know, it'd be great to live in a pro-gun state like Texas. Texas has a lot of laws that we don't have here in Indiana that I would never want. For instance, if I want to 
swing by the local watering hole on the way home and have a beer in Indiana. And I'm carrying my lawfully possessed firearm. Totally legal. In some states, including Texas, if an establishment serves alcohol, you can't carry a gun there. In some states, like Texas, it's, it's illegal to have any amount of alcohol in your system while you're carrying a gun. Now, is it smart? Is it good policy? Is it responsible to go get stone-faced drunk while you're carrying a gun? Of course not. But in the meantime, if you want to stop off and have a beer on your way home from work and you're carrying your gun, the state of Indiana won't make you a criminal like the state of Texas will. And frankly, I treat carrying a gun and having a beer a lot like I treat driving and having a beer. If I wouldn't be comfortable driving with however many beers or perhaps a nice bourbon I care to enjoy on the way home, if I wouldn't be comfortable driving, I'm not comfortable carrying a gun. But my point in all of that is not to advocate for drinking while you're carrying a gun. My point is there are laws we don't have here in Indiana that a lot of states have, and I really do put us way at the top of the list when it comes to states that respect, through their legislation, the Second Amendment rights of their citizens. You know, we also have had some huge successes, and, and sometimes as gun owners, again, when we get frustrated, we need to step back and take a look at things like we were the first state in the country to ever have a lifetime license to carry. Now, a lot of us have been saying for a long time we shouldn't have to have a license at all. But look what Indiana did. We first adopted a lifetime license. You go in, you pass a background check one time, you get your license to carry, and you never have to go back and pay another fee. You never have to go back and do another background check. Now, the state police continuously cross-reference. Periodically might be a better word, but they cross-reference the criminal histories with the list of people who have a license to carry. Just because you passed a background check once to get your license, you go out and commit a felony, or you commit any number of other offenses that can make you a prohibited possessor, you get a domestic violence order of protection issue issued against you, then you're no longer eligible for a license. You'll get a certified letter in the mail from the state police that say, we've uncovered information that indicates you're no longer a quote-unquote proper person as defined by statute to have a license to carry, and your license is hereby suspended pending a hearing. And you can either attend that hearing and, and defend your status as a proper person to have a license or not. But my point in all of that is we had a lifetime license. And as long as you or I don't do something knuckleheaded to make us lose our license, we keep it forever. And then eventually we made it free. We made the five-year license free, then we made the lifetime free. In fact, while we were fighting for constitutional carry, what I heard all the time from legislators who were opposing constitutional carry, they said all the time, Guy, why are you fighting so hard for, hard for this? All you need to do is go get your lifetime license. You never have to worry about it again. Well, why is this so important to gun owners? That is to do away with the requirement of going to the government and acquiring permission 
on the front end before you can exercise a constitutional right. And that's how I'd answer the question. I say, I would say, I want to live in a state that honors and respects the Second Amendment on par with every other constitutional protection. I don't know of another constitutional right where I have to go apply for a permit or a license in order to exercise a right I already had. If I have a right to protection against unreasonable searches and seizures so that police can't just walk up and kick my door in with no warrant and no probable cause, if I already have a right to that protection against unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment, should I have to go in and apply for a permit? Yeah, I need a, per- I need a placard that the state of Indiana issues to me only after a background check that I can hang on my doorknob or I can nail to my front door that says this house is protected against unreasonable searches and seizures. Go to the go to the neighbor's house. He didn't apply for his permit. He has no rights under the Fourth Amendment. Kick his door in. Does that make any sense to you? I, I need to go in and, uh, and pay a fee, you know, for many, many years. I had to pay fees. Go through a background check. Apply for a, a license so I can wear a medallion around my neck or get a tattoo on my chest. That'd be good. It says this guy is protected against cruel and unusual punishment for any crime. So I get convicted of some misdemeanor and the local authorities want to skin me alive, hypothetically speaking, for whatever crime I committed. And they rip my shirt open, fully intending to skin me alive, and they go, oh, hold on, he's got the tattoo. He's got the medallion that says he passed a background check. He paid his fee. He got his he got his his permit, his license to be protected against cruel and unusual punishment. Damn. Okay, bring the next guy in. He didn't apply for his license. We're skinning him alive. Does that make any sense to you? When you put it in the context of other constitutional freedoms, it makes no sense. Not to mention the First Amendment. You know, the closest thing, the closest thing we have, when I say no other right is treated like this, is the local ordinances around that require you to get some kind of a permit or pay some kind of a fee to have a a public gathering. You know, the First Amendment not only protects those rights we talk about the most often, the free speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, also talks about the right of peaceful assembly. In fact, one time when I was testifying for constitutional carry, this was years ago, I had a Democrat representative in committee try to cross-examine me, and he says, you know, I keep hearing people say no other right is regulated like this. So guy, in a lot of cities, including Indianapolis, you have to go get a permit to have some kind of a parade or other public assembly, and the First Amendment protects that right. Do you think that's under unconstitutional? I said, absolutely. What do you say, Representative? I'll write the bill. You introduce it. We'll call the First Amendment Freedom Restoration Act right here in Indiana. You write it. You file it. I'll push for it, I'll testify, and and we'll restore First Amendment rights the way they ought to be right here in Indiana. This guy looked at me. Give me the fish mouth. You know the fish mouth where your your mouth's kind of forming a circle, but you can't get words to come out? 
That's the closest analogy I can think of. But that's why we pushed for it. That's why we get frustrated. We got frustrated for so many years we couldn't get it passed. But I want to take a step back because we got that done. We got a life. We had a lifetime license. We have the strongest self-defense immunity law in the country. Now, that may be my ego speaking because I wrote it. But it's incredibly strong. It protects your right not only to defend yourself, but then to be free from civil liability if the scumbag who is trying to hurt you, hurt your family, or hurt some other third person where you lawfully, justifiably used force against that scumbag, it prevents the scumbag from turning around and suing you. Or the family of the dead scumbag if you use deadly force. And we're going to take a break. We're a little past the quarter hour. We're going to talk more about this as we come back. But it's the strongest self-defense immunity bill in the country. And we got that done here in Indiana. But I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up that sort of long preamble and talk about, okay, what's going on this year and where are we playing both offense and defense? Some of these things I've talked about here on the show before, some I have not. We'll kind of do a, a bit of a report card on the halfway point. We're, we're more or less at what we call halftime often, colloquially, in the Indiana General Assembly, because if bills haven't gotten through the Senate by now, they're dead. If they haven't gotten through committee and gotten a vote, then unless the language of those bills somehow get amended into some other bill that's still alive, it's dead. And as far as bills we oppose, that's good. And and so now the whole process starts over. And the same true, obviously, is bills introduced in the House. But now the whole process starts over, and bills that are still alive, having survived and been passed in their originating chamber, we now have to see what happens to them when they cross over and go to the other chamber, House or Senate. We'll talk more about that when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in Central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And I got to tell you, of everything filed in the General Assembly this year, one bill had me by far and away the most concerned. And this was very concerning for a number of reasons. And this was Senate Bill 295. And the short title, the informal title was just talked about red flag laws and a little bit of background if you listen to the gun guy show you probably know most of this uh, indiana was the second state in the country to pass a so-called red flag law that allows guns to be seized from people 
determined to be, quote-unquote, dangerous, and dangerous is defined in the statute. And, and importantly, this is when they haven't committed any crime. So it makes a red flag law so unusual, or, or at least not unusual in the sense that a lot of states have passed them now. I think well over 20 states, probably close to half the states in the country. But what makes it unusual in terms of how we treat individuals in this country is we're talking about seizure of property when someone's not been committed, been convicted of, of a crime and deprivation of a constitutional freedom under your second under the Second Amendment. And we've had this since 2005. And I've litigated a lot of red flag cases. I'm the only lawyer in the state who's taken the red flag statute to the Indiana Court of Appeals twice. I'm the only one who's done it once. I've argued to the Indiana Court of Appeals. I lost in a two-to-one decision, although I ultimately won the case and got the gentleman's guns back. But I argued that the statute was unconstitutional. And in a two-to-one decision, the Court of Appeals, who I respect a lot, I respect the panel who ruled on this, in a very long decision, it was like 47 pages, if I, if I remember, ruled no. In fact, the statute's constitutional. So I've litigated a lot of these cases. And the, the, the one thing that distinguishes Indiana law from several other states in, in terms of what their red flag law looks like, is that while your guns can be taken from you, let's say police get a report that you're suicidal, you're in your home, and your significant other calls and says, you know, that you just threatened to kill yourself and held a gun to your head. And the police need to come out and take your guns away. Simply based on that report, and of course they'll follow up when they show up at the residence, but based on that report, Police are going to take your guns. They'll take the gun you may have used, or at least allegedly used, to threaten your own life, and they'll take any other guns in the house. And then, if a gun or guns are, are seized without a warrant, police officers have to submit an affidavit to the court that establishes probable cause to believe that you're dangerous as a justification for having taken your guns. And the court reviews that affidavit and it determines there was either probable cause to take your guns or there wasn't. If they find probable cause, then they're supposed to schedule a hearing if they can within 14 days. Although, if you're the one whose guns were taken, you can request a continuance. If you want to gather more evidence, you might want to bring in experts. In, in a case of someone alleged to be suicidal, a lot of times in my cases, I want to bring in an expert. I want to bring in a psychologist, psychiatrist who's seen the person multiple times. and said, no, there's no indication here this person's suicidal. So you can get more time, up to 60 days, if you need it. So why was I so concerned about Senate Bill 295? Again, what's a little different about our statute is that in the meantime, before you've had full due process, and by full due process, I mean the opportunity for a hearing to present your own evidence 
to be represented by counsel, to confront the witnesses against you. Because keep in mind, I can give you a, a, a statistic in terms of the percentage, but a significant number of red flag cases, and I know because I've defended them, they're brought maliciously. They're brought frivolously. For any number of reasons, I've seen them instigated by vindictive spouses or ex, soon-to-be ex-spouses or ex-spouses. I've seen them initiated by jealous co-workers. I've seen them initiated by neighbors who are angry over something petty like where people are leaving their trash cans. And they say, man, you know, neighbor Bob, I know he's a big shooter. I see him lugging his guns out to his car all the time. I know he's a competitive sporting clay shooter, or I know whatever. He's a firearms instructor. That's how he makes his living. Ha ha, I'll fix him. I'll just report to police that he threatened me with a gun, and he's crazy, and he needs to have his guns taken away. I've seen that case. Police officer. I know. I need to red flag this guy so he won't be able to do his job. I'll say he's dangerous. He threatened me, or he's suicidal. So even in those frivolous cases, what's different about our statute is that until you get your full due process where you can be represented by counsel, you can present your own evidence, you can confront the witnesses against you, including someone making a frivolous claim. By the way, Jim Lucas and I had a bill passed two, three years ago that now says if you make a false claim that someone's dangerous under the red flag law, that's a crime now, which it had not been before. And we fixed that. It now falls under the false reporting statute. But you don't lose your status as a proper person, whether to have a license to carry or to purchase a firearm or possess other firearms in Indiana under our statute until you've had due process. And doesn't that make sense? If we're going to strip someone of their constitutional freedoms, shouldn't they have a the opportunity and the right to defend themselves first, to have due process. That's what the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment protect in this country is due process. Well, of course, yes. We're a little past the bottom of the hour. I'll talk about Senate Bill 295, how it changed the due process requirements of our red flag law why that was so concerning and what the current status is when we come back. We'll also go to the phone lines. We had one gentleman call, which I think a good question, who seems to have dropped off. We got our pal Buzz on the phone as well. Uh, but hey, if you had to drop off, I'll be taking calls when we come back. And I think I remember from his conversation with producer Carl what the question was, which I can address as well. But give us a call, 317-239-9393. Yeah, questions about what's going on in the General Assembly, about red flag laws, self-defense immunity, or whatever else, just give us a call, 317-239-9393. We'll be right back. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it, but make sure you join us live at WIBC.com. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I'm to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7, WIBC.
And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, if a bill hasn't gotten through its originating chamber, in other words, if it was filed in the Senate and it hasn't gotten through the Senate yet, then it's dead. Now again, we never can never mourn too quickly or celebrate too quickly because the language of a bill can get amended into another bill that's still alive. It can even they can even do what's called a strip and insert, which is where the entire language of a bill that's still alive gets completely stripped out and the language of a new bill is reinserted into it that may have absolutely nothing to do with the original bill. That can be a good thing when you're trying to get a bill passed, especially when a particular committee chairman has killed it. This is what we did to get constitutional carry passed. Chairman Liz Brown in the Judiciary Committee in the Senate last year had constitutional carry pretty much dead as a doornail. Defied Senate leadership who said, give it a hearing. And she gave it a hearing. She just completely manipulated the hearing so as to convince enough senators to vote against it in committee and not give it a vote on the floor of the Senate, which is what all we were ever asking for. And we went through this so-called strip and insert process. So you can't celebrate too early. You can't mourn too quickly if a bill hasn't survived its originating chamber. But for something like Senate Bill 295 on red flag laws, I think we're pretty close to being able to celebrate. And what this did, and let's give it a little background. And again, that's just this week we can say it's dead in the Senate, unless something fairly dramatic happens. So that's a new development, the fact that it didn't progress as it needed to progress at this stage in the legislative process. But let's talk about a little background. This bill was instigated by, was asked for, the essentially the Indiana Prosecutors Association. And you might recall the Indiana Prosecutors Association and I were pretty diametrically opposed on the issue of constitutional care. But in this context, I think the Indiana, Indiana Prosecutors Association, and, and I, by the way, I've had meetings with these folks. They're, they're good people. We just disagree on a lot of things. And one of the Prosecutors Association, what, what, what's their job? I mean, they, they will tell you it's to you know, promote justice, and, 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 and I'm sure that, again, they're good people. But what do prosecutors want? Prosecutors want the law to make it easier for them to convict people. I think that's a fair statement. And they want to remove laws or amend laws that make it more difficult to convict people. And in this context, they wanted to make it easier to take guns away from people. And in my view, they were acting at the behest primarily of Ryan Mears from Marion County, the pro elected prosecutor. And, and why is that the case? Prosecutor Ryan Mears here in Indianapolis faced a, a, a fair amount of heat. Now, it wasn't enough to get him defeated in the last election. He still won by something like 70% of the vote against a very solid Republican challenger, Cindy Carrasco, who I really liked. I thought she was very well qualified, and I thought she ran a solid campaign. But those straight-ticket voters in Marion County didn't want to hear anything about it in terms of a viable alternative. 
but notwithstanding his success in the election, he faced a, a fair amount of heat over the fact that the FedEx shooter, the person who was able to legally buy two rifles that he used in a mass shooting and kill multiple people, I believe nine people lost their lives at the Federal Ex Express facility here in Indy. Prosecutors, before any of that happened, and over a year prior to the actual FedEx shooting, prosecutors in Marion County, Ryan Mears' office, simply failed to file a red flag proceeding after cops, after IMPD, had seized a shotgun from this same shooter after his mother and his sister walked into a police station and said, this guy's dangerous. He says he wants to commit suicide by cop. He's already violent. They told cops that he had punched his mother. Now he'd bought a shotgun. Said he wanted to, to, to die in a shootout with cops. And so cops red flagged him. And they did their job. They took the gun. They filed their documentation with the prosecutor's office to establish they had probable cause to seize the gun. Ryan Mears' office did nothing with it. It just sat. Didn't file the case. Ultimately, the family agreed to not pursue recovery of the shotgun. But in the meantime, the guy not having gone through a proceeding to determine whether he's dangerous, because Ryan Mears never took the bat off his shoulder and took a swing, remained a lawful gun owner and able to buy more guns. And so Ryan Mears, to defend that, when people said, my God, cops took a gun from this guy, said he was dangerous, you never filed the case. So it never went forward. He said, well, that, that's because of defects in the statute. That's not my fault. That statute's flawed, and we need to fix some serious defects in the statute to allow us to file more of these cases. Senate Bill 295 introduced this year is Ryan Mears' cover. It's Ryan Mears' scapegoating the statute for why he never implemented the statute, why he never, why he never began a proceeding to begin with. How is that? How did we beat it? How did we get it killed in the Senate? We'll talk more about that when we come back and issue some thank you, some thank yous to uh, the folks who decided this was bad policy and bad law for the state of Indiana and didn't allow it to go forward. But right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And I'll tell you what, before we continue the discussion on our red flag laws and um, what the proposed amendment to those laws in a bill that for now has died in the Indiana Senate, before we continue that discussion, let's go to the phone lines. We've had some folks holding for a while. Scott, you called in uh, early on, man. I think I'm, I think you called back. Thanks for calling back. Well, thank you for uh, taking my call. I have a quick question. Sure. Uh, Constitutional carry. I'm glad we've got that. Yep. Uh, my qu my question is, I have a smaller uh, one of my guns is a smaller LC9 Ruger 9 millimeter. Uh, my holster for it actually goes in the front pocket. So, 
is that considered concealed carry, or does the uh, constitutional carry uh, trump that that uh, that law? Well, in like historically, and Scott, thanks for calling in with your question. Um, like historically, if you had a license to carry in Indiana, that it wasn't a concealed carry license. It covered both open and concealed carry. And if you got a license, you could choose how you wanted to carry. Constitutional carry works exactly the same way. So under our constitutional carry law, if you're at least 18 and you're not prohibited from possessing a firearm under either state or federal law, then you can carry a handgun and you can open carry it or you can conceal carry it. Um, so I understand what you're saying. If you have a smaller gun, and actually, uh, I know the, the gun you're talking about because I, I bought one for my wife here a couple of years ago. Um, uh, LC9S is what I got her. But if you're pocket carrying, by the way, you always want to still have a holster. I'm not suggesting you don't do that already, but you want a pocket holster so you're protecting the trigger while you're carrying it. But if, if it prints, in other words, if you can see the outline of the gun, um, is that considered concealed or open? Well, I would say it's still concealed just because you, you're printing or you can see the outline of the gun doesn't change that. Um, but it also doesn't matter uh, because our, our law, uh, either whether you have a license or you don't, constitutional carry works the same way. You can carry either openly or concealed. So hope that answers your question. Let's go back to the phone lines and our pal Buzz has called in. Hey, Buzz, how are you doing? Hey, how you doing? Thanks a lot. Hey, guy. Okay, I got two real quick ones. First one is on the red flag. If you are falsely flagged and they take your firearms, does that still give them the purview to fire each one of them and get the ballistics and they can take up to two years to get them back to you? And my, my (laughs) second question real quick is, do you plan on doing your show next month at the uh, NRA? Oh, yeah. Great. Two great questions, Buzz, man. Thanks for calling. Um, yeah, and what Buzz is talking about is in Marion County, and there was just a an excellent um, expose, I think it's fair to call it, uh, done by Richard Essex of Wish TV. And, and it's a long story. It's nine minutes long. I've posted it on my social media but it has to do with the fact that Marion County, if your gun is taken into the property room for any reason, could be red flag case, uh, could be because it's evidence in a crime, it could be because you're the victim of a crime. If you get your house broken into and uh, people stole your guns and police recover your guns, well, your guns go into the property room. After the case is over, your, your, your guns are no longer being held as evidence. It can still take you up to two years to get your guns back. And get this. In Marion County, if if you don't have an original receipt, not an original, but a copy of a receipt showing that you're the purchaser of that gun, they won't give it back to you anyway. And the reason it takes two years is they run ballistics, they do background checks, uh, and uh, they check the serial number. And there are 21,000 guns in Marion County currently in the property room, according to this story. So, but no, the answer, quick answer to your question is if, 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 if your guns are taken and say the gun's been shot and the ballistics are relevant, you can get that done much quicker because it's evidence. You can generate that evidence and that's why you need due process. 
Uh, separately, yeah, I'm sure we will do a live show from the NRA annual meeting, just like uh, we did uh, four or five years ago when it was, oh, it was 2019, so it was four years ago. Right now, we're coming up on the top of the hour, so it's time to take a break. We'll be right back with The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. And welcome to hour number two of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. By the way, you've heard some ads running uh, here on the Gun Guy Show for the Indy 1500 Gun and Knife Show. That is coming up again here this coming weekend. So Friday, March 10th is when that kicks off. Uh, I'm proud to work with them. Our producer Carl and I just... Recorded a couple of new spots for them, which I'm always pleased to do. And I'll be out there. Uh, if you're going to be out, uh, you, you're, you may very likely run into me, particularly Saturday, before I come down and do radio. It's fun to stop in uh, the Indy 1500 and see what's going on out there, what they have for sale, um, and and uh, what I might need to uh, augment what I already have in my possession. So given a little bit of a halftime report on the Indiana General Assembly, and I spent a, lot, a long time talking about Senate Bill 295 because this one concerned me. It concerned me primarily because it was introduced by a Republican and, and, and a senator who's been pro-2A uh, historically and, uh, and who I have a lot of respect for. And I thought the fact that it was introduced by a, a Republican, it was going to get more consideration than it otherwise might. But I really give... Uh, a lot of kudos here to Senate leadership, including Chairman of the Courts and Criminal Code Committee in the Senate, Aaron Freeman. And, and if you recall me mentioning Senator Freeman before, he was an absolute rock star on constitutional carry. And uh, he met with with me uh, and uh, and members of the Indiana Prosecutors Association who were pushing for the bill, and we were able to, to talk it out. And we weren't able to come to an agreement on what a bill like this should look like because I was not going to agree to anything. And, and it's not just me. I mean, just, you know, representing Indiana gun owners. And, and the, the, the person who has responsibility locally here from, uh, for, uh, uh, for Indiana uh, from the NRA, uh, John Weber, was there as well. Jen, J John joined us uh, by conference call. I, I pretty much did all the talking. But what I, what I explained is why I had a problem with stripping due process out of a bill uh, so as to deprive people of their constitutional freedom uh, with no ability to defend themselves. And by the way, once you were found to be a prohibited possessor, simply based on the, a judge finding probable cause based on one report, one side of the story, and it could be a frivolous, malicious report done simply to injure you, under this bill... That would have gotten reported that you're now a prohibited possessor with no ability to defend yourself would have gotten reported to the National Criminal History Databases that you're a prohibited possessor. Well, you've had no ability to defend yourself. Oh, hell no. And I'm, I'm glad that's gone away. Some other ones that don't deserve as much attention, but, but certainly raised my eyebrows when I read them. Uh, there was a so-called safe storage bill 
that would make it a crime if you own a firearm, you have a firearm in your home, and you fail to either keep that firearm locked and unloaded or store the firearm and ammunition in separate locations from each other, that is the firearm and ammo. So not it's and. Keep the firearm lock, locked and unloaded and store the firearm and ammunition in separate locations. And that is if there's a minor present in the home or a vehicle where the firearm is located. So minor, meaning under 18. So I could have a 17-year-old state champion in sporting class who lives in my home. And if I have my personal defense handgun sitting on my nightstand with that kid who could teach gun safety classes, who's completely trained and authorized to possess guns in my home, simply having my handgun on a nightstand while that kid is home makes me a criminal. Does that make any sense to you? That's the kind of crap we have to fight off every year. Had another one that I got a little personal chuckle out of. Was brought to make possession of a gun at a polling place a crime. And I got a chuckle out of that because I litigated this issue. I had a client, this goes back a few years now. I had a client who was an active duty Marine at the time who went to vote, and he was voting at a fire station in St. Joseph County, South Bend. And he's a smart guy. He'd researched the laws, and he knew it was not illegal to carry a gun in a fire station. Well, that was his polling place. That was his designated place to go vote. And he said, well, there's no law against carrying a gun in a polling place, either in Indiana or at the federal level. There's no gun against having a gun at a fire station. I'm going to carry my gun when I go vote. And so he went to vote at this fire station. And a person who was both an assistant chief at the fire department and a police officer for, I believe, the St. Joseph County Sheriff's Department, if my memory serves, saw him walking in with his gun and said, No, thou shalt not pass here. You will not vote while you're carrying that gun. And my client, who was not quite yet then my client, he was was my client about 15 minutes later. But he said, why? It's not illegal to carry a gun in a polling place. Not illegal to carry a gun in a fire station. And they, and they, I don't know whether it was ignorance or, or, or absolute uh, falsity intentionally, but he, the guy lied. He goes, yes, there's a law. There's a federal law that says you can't vote in a polling place. Client said, no, there's not. Well, you can't have a gun in a fire station. No, no such law. Yes, there is. He goes, no, man, I'm telling you. He goes, you know, show me the law. You know, let's go. Let's get our phones out. Let's get Google out. Show me the law that says it's illegal to carry a gun in a polling place or a fire station. And the guy finally had to fall back on his little moment of authority and said, well, it's my rule. You're not voting in my fire station and my polling place with a gun. And so he kicked the guy out. Well, my client called me. That's when he became my client. He called me from South Bend and said, can they do this? And I said, no, they cannot do that. 
And I said, and it violates what we have in Indiana, another great law that we have here in Indiana that a lot of states don't have, which is a preemption law. What's preemption law say? It means that local governments can't make up their own rules. They can't regulate firearms. There are certain exceptions to that. Like they can say you can't have a gun in a county courthouse. And there are limited other exceptions. But for the most part, local governments can't regulate firearms, including the carrying and possession of firearms, period, end of story. We passed that in 2011. Great law. That means the city of Bloomington, as the mayor down there continuously wants to do, can't regulate firearms to deprive you of your rights. The mayor of South Bend or the city council or Hammond, and they're what they call common council up there, they can't have regulations of firearms, can't do it. And here... If the city of South Bend or St. Joseph County or the St. Joseph County Sheriff's Department or the St. Joseph County Fire Department has a rule that says you can't take your gun into a, a firehouse or you can't take your gun into a polling place, they can't do that under the Preemption Act. And so I called the police chief. I, I, I believe it was the sheriff. And said, hey, by the way, he was not available. He said, well, he's very busy. It's election day. I'm like, yeah, well, he needs to be a little busier and go fix this problem he's got at the volunteer fire station located at such and such an address. Because he's got a guy there telling my client he can't vote. And it's illegal. You can't tell him that. You violate the preemption law. So I don't know if I'll be able to get a hold of him. Like, really? You can't get a hold of the sheriff? doesn't have a radio, doesn't have a cell phone, call him and tell him, I just want my client to be able to show up and vote. That's easy. Got no response. So about 10 till 6, when the poll was going to close, my client showed back up, said, I'm here to vote. And the same guy, they met him at the door, didn't even allow him to go in the building. Thou shalt not pass. Nay, you armed person, you cannot vote. Take your gun back to the car or you can't come in here. And he goes, I'm not relinquishing one constitutional right to exercise another. No. He said, well, then you can't vote. Did not let him vote. So we sued them. And they fought and haggled and, and kicked and screamed, but eventually they realized they broke the law and had to pay my client a settlement. And, and, and on that basis, I was very proud at the time the election board, the state election board, disseminated information to all the county election boards. It said, basically, unless the polling place is already a place you can't legally carry a gun, like a school, you can't exclude people from voting because they're carrying guns. And it's kind of fun because the very next election, I went to vote in a primary in the next election. And I went in to vote. And one of the inspectors or judges or whatever, the different officers there, officials there at the polling place, I called them over and I go, I go, hey, did you guys get any instruction just recently on whether people can carry guns here in the polling place? Because, oh, yeah, they really emphasized that. They told us we can't kick people out just for carrying a gun. I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. I didn't brag to him on my involvement in that process. So I was interested when this year a Democrat in the House introduced a bill to make it illegal at the state level to carry a gun in a polling place. 
And I, and I got to ask, why do you suppose that is? Now, this is a, a senator who's long stood against gun rights. And every time I have a, any kind of a hearing in the Senate, this guy's always there and he and I have a debate. And I know he just doesn't like the Second Amendment. He just doesn't like gun rights generally. He just doesn't like guns. But what do you suppose the motivation is to say you can't carry your otherwise legally owned gun into where you vote? I mean, I carry a gun everywhere I can lawfully carry a gun. I, like most people, carry carry concealed. Who should care one way or the other? I'm not committing any crime. Who should carry whether one of those places I lawfully carry is when I go vote? I can't think of a single reasonable, justifiable reason. So that, like many of these other anti-2A bills, has now died. I'll tell you what, we're a little past quarter hour. We're taking a break. We come back. I'll go back to the phone lines. We've had some people call in. Oh, I have had them drop off as well. Hey, if you got bored or 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 uh, uh, lost patience uh, with how long it took me to get to the phone lines, give us a call back. 317-239-9393. That's 317-239-9393. Glad to take your questions uh, or comments here on the air. We'll kind of wrap up the discussion on what's going on in the Indiana General Assembly, broaden things out a little bit, talk more, uh, more about what's going on nationally when we come back. And... As I mentioned, we'll continue to take your calls uh, as well. 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Let's go right to the phone lines. We've had Chris call in with an interesting question. Chris, uh, what do you got for us? Uh, I was just going to ask you, um, uh, first of all, yeah, I appreciate your show. I think you've got one of the best shows out there. But uh, Thank you, man. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask you, what if uh, you get a gun handed down to you? i got a couple of guns uh, handed down to me from my dad. He passed away a couple of years ago. And uh I go out and get in a car wreck, whatever, police end up with my gun. And, uh, um, yeah, there, and there is no, he, he, he bought it maybe 34 years ago. There is no trace or receipt. So how does that mean you can't never get your gun back? Yeah. Well, according to the Marion County and IMPD, and they say they've, they've, they've uh, been doing this for a long time. Now this requirement for a receipt is new to me. That, I'm hearing that for the first time. And yeah, get this, crazy. you know where the, the first person I heard that from? My mom. Oh, really? <laughs> my, uh, no kidding. My 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 mom had a gun taken from her by a guy, former employee, who then got pulled over and arrested 
for any number of different crimes, including having a firearm by a serious violent felon, was my mom's gun. And she had the owner's manual. She didn't have a receipt. And um, she went down. When they eventually released the gun, this is years after the guy was arrested, it's no longer evidence of a crime. She went down and said, nope, you need a, you need a receipt from, from the store where you bought it. She goes, well, I don't have a receipt. Well, then you, you can't get your gun. So to answer your question, Chris, uh, they would just tell you you're out of luck. They're, they're basically, in my mind, stealing your property from you because you can't prove your own property is yours. And, and keep in mind, in most situations, the, the gun's been seized from you. In other words, you, the question you just asked is if you're in a car wreck and the gun and you go to the hospital your your car gets impounded they search your vehicle as part of impounding it they find the gun it goes to the property room the gun's not evidence in any crime okay it's going to take two years potentially for them to release it because they do this ridiculous process where they run ballistics and keep in mind there's a constitutional issue here there's a fourth amendment issue fourth amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures when they run ballistics on your gun they don't just run ballistics. They, 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 they run those. That is, they're comparing the projectile. They test fire it. And they compare the projectile they get out of it to other projectiles that they have in the system. They, they, they are, are going to compare the, 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 the markings on the casing in terms of an extractor mark or a striker mark and put those into the same kind of comparison against other casings that they may have in the system. And then all that inf- information, and this came out, again, uh, uh, in this really excellent story done by Richard Essex at Wish TV. And uh, I, I published it on my social media. I'm sure you can find it on the Wish TV website. But they're also sending all that information to the ATF database in Washington. Your information on your gun that's not involved in any crime, you're not a suspect in a crime, the gun's not evidence in any crime, and IMPD is taking that and, and, in my mind, conducting a search via test firing and running this information, doing this database comparison, and then sending all that information to a federal database where it's kept for all of posterity. How is that okay? How is that justifiable when your gun's not evidence of any in any crime? Now, somebody goes out and commits a murder with a gun. We want to know whether that gun was used in any other murders. Knock yourself out. Now, once the case is over, it shouldn't take two years to get the damn gun back if you're the lawful owner of that gun. But it's but the part that bothers me in a situation involving my mom. She was. A victim of the idiot taking her gun. And by the way, the guy was driving her car when the gun was seized. They took a gun out of her car. Why should she have to produce a receipt? Unless they have some evidence that she's not the owner. In your situation, Chris, you're driving your car. You have a wreck. IMPD impounds, I should say, your car, takes your gun out of your car. They're essentially taking that gun from you. Unless they have some evidence that that's not your gun, why the hell should you have to prove it is? If you got pulled over for, not you, anyone, got pulled over for an OWI, operating while intoxicated, 
and you're carrying a gun in a holster on your hip. Now, as I mentioned, carrying the gun isn't a separate crime, but you still go to jail for the OWI. Your gun goes to the property room. The gun's not relevant to the criminal investigation whatsoever. It's only relevant of whether you were over the legal limit and you were driving. The gun has nothing to do with it. They took the gun out of your holster, out of your car, and sent it to the property room. Now, you have to prove it's yours? They took it from you. How do we know it's your gun? Because you took it out of my holster. And by the way, you ran the serial number to make sure it's not stolen. So why the hell shouldn't you give me my gun back? What evidence do you have it's not my gun? Comes up stolen? Okay. You got something to talk about. It doesn't? Give me my damn gun back. This is a way for Marion County. This is Marion County, I'm telling you. And it's IMPD stealing guns from people. That part's intentional. Let's just let's make them show us a receipt. Not, people don't have receipts for guns. Everybody knows they don't have receipts for guns. I couldn't tell you exactly how many guns I own, but I, I have damn few receipts, I'll guarantee you. You take my gun from me, the case is over, give me my gun back. That's not hard. And the IMPD assistant chief in the article... In, it was interviewed by Richard Essex, who, again, did a, just a fabulous job in this whole expose. And he said, well, we don't want to be in a position where we give a gun back to a murderer. Well, if he's a murderer, then charge him with a crime, he won't get his gun back. If he's a prohibited possessor because he's, oh, say, a murderer, then he doesn't get his gun back. If you run the serial number, it doesn't come back as stolen. There's no indication it's continuing evidence in a crime, including a murder. How is that justification for keeping that gun? It doesn't make any sense. The whole thing makes me angry. Good news is, after this story aired, and I was interviewed extensively, um, we, we talked for quite some time in my office. It's something I've been harping about for a while. And by the way, quickly, here before we take a break, people ask me the question, well, why hasn't somebody sued IMPD? Well, I've had that conversation a bunch. In fact, I talk about this in the interview that was aired by Wish TV. People, I say, well, we can sue them. You want to sue them? Let's sue them. What's your gun worth? Let's say it's a really nice gun. It's $1,000. It's a, a SIG Legion 229. $1,200 gun. Nice gun. Awesome. I want that gun back. Great. Let's file a lawsuit. Am I going to take that on a contingency basis where I get one-third of $1,200 for litigating an entire lawsuit? And by the way, typically, you're not asking for money damage. You're, you're asking for return of the, of the, of the gun. How do you... How, how do you economically justify filing that lawsuit. Somebody says, well, no, I'll pay you by the hour. Okay. Going to spend eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 on legal fees to get a $1,200 gun back. See, IMPD knows people aren't going to do that. Now, I take a lot of cases pro bono. I represented the Greenwood Park Mall shooter for free. I haven't charged him a dime. A lot of other cases come across my desk. 
where I decide for economic reasons a person can't afford to pay a lawyer, okay, I'll take it for free. Haven't done that one yet. I'm getting pretty damn close. And it's something the two-way project wants to take a look at as well. But in the meantime, after the story aired this last week, then I had multiple legislators, including my friend Jim Lucas, and said, hey, man, write me a bill. Write me some language. Let's put it in a statute. Let's say IMPD can't do legally what they're doing right now. You bet. Working on it right now. We're going to change the law. And if that doesn't work, although I see no reason why it shouldn't, if that doesn't work, then we'll sue their ass and we'll go from there. You can't deprive somebody of their property. You can't deprive somebody of their constitutional rights and have as an excuse, oh, well, you can't prove your property's yours, or sorry, it just takes us two years to run a search on your property where we have no probable cause to believe the gun was even involved in a crime. That makes no sense. It makes no sense on a constitutional basis. It makes no sense from a policy perspective. And we're going to change it. We'll change it in the courtroom, or we'll change it in the legislature. We're going to change it one way or the other. Uh, We'll go back to the phone lines when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And I'll tell you what, we've had some folks on hold up. We had one drop off again, but let's still go to the phone lines. And we got Keith. Keith, welcome to the Gun Guy Show, man. Hey, glad to hear you. Yeah, just have a question on constitutional carry reciprocity. Okay, what's your question? Well, if I'm a, if I'm a citizen of Indiana uh, and I travel to a state that normally recognizes Indiana gun permits. Yep. But I don't have a permit because I'm carrying a constitutional carry. Do they recognize that? Yeah, okay. You want to know how that works? Um, I actually I wrote an article. First of all, thanks uh, for calling the Gun Guys show, Keith. We appreciate it. Um, I wrote an article for uh, the 2A Project website. And so um, just go to the2aproject.com. That's with a number two, so the number two a project.com. And I scroll down to where the articles are, and I think it's the very first one. And it's entitled How Reciprocity Works Under Constitutional Carry. And it, it's something that, uh, that people need to understand uh, if you're going to travel uh, and rely on constitutional carry. And, and, and the starting point is, 32 states recognize the Indiana license to carry. And I list all 32 of those. Okay, so you know if you have a license to carry, you're good to go to those states. Now, several of those states have restrictions. And they grant reciprocity, for instance, only to people 
uh, who are 21 and up. In Indiana, you can get a license to carry at 18. In some states, like Florida, for instance, just by way of example, says, oh, yeah, we recognize the Indiana license, but only for people 21 and up. So you got to know that. Well, you have to know exactly the same kind of thing in terms of who has passed or what states have passed constitutional carry. So, uh, for instance, 24 other states besides Indiana have passed constitutional carry. But a bunch of them only recognize constitutional carry, that is, having a handgun in your possession without a license, if you're 21 and up. Now, it sounds like from your voice, somebody like you or me, we're well over 21, good to go in those 24 other states. However, then you got to ask yourself the question, are there any other restrictions? And, for instance, North Dakota says they recognize constitutional carry, but only for residents of North Dakota. So just knowing that a state has passed constitutional carry doesn't answer the question. You have to know whether they have other restrictions, like only 21 and up, or only for residents of the state. Now, the good news is, of the 24 other states that have passed constitutional carry, 23 of them are like Indiana and recognize it for both residents and non-residents. North Dakota is actually the only one that restricts it, to, restricts it to North Dakota residents or to their own residents. So you got to be aware of the age restrictions and, and in several states, again, just going down the list, Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine. Kentucky's important because it's right next door. Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming all have constitutional carry, but only for those 21 and up. Again, North Dakota, only for North Dakota residents. So you do the math. There are 32 states that recognize our license. 23 of those have constitutional carry for non-residents. That means there are nine states where you still need an Indiana license to be able to carry there. Also means there are 18 states, or maybe 17 when you take Indiana out of the list. There are 17 states where you can't carry there at all. They don't recognize our license. That's why I still would like to see a national reciprocity bill pass, although to the extent I want to keep the federal government out of the regulation of firearms as much as possible, I'd rather see the courts overturn the restrictions in those 17 states that don't allow non-residents to carry even with a license issued by their home state. In other words, if a state has to recognize my marriage license under the 14th Amendment, equal protection, full faith and credit, if a state has to recognize my recognize my marriage license, if they have to recognize my driver's license, why shouldn't they have to recognize under the 14th Amendment my license to carry? Why should I be able to or why should I become a felon simply because I inadvertently crossed the state line into New Jersey or New York or California or Ohio or excuse me or Illinois depending on how I'm carrying the gun if I have it in my vehicle that's a safe harbor in Illinois but you see my point so in my mind 
14th Amendment ought to protect us. That's why I'd like to see a court case that says exactly that. And this Supreme Court would likely rule exactly that way if they see the right case. So that's how it works. But in the meantime, if you want the specifics, what states have passed constitutional carry, what states require uh, it to be uh, only 21 plus for constitutional carry, and what 32 states recognize our license, you can go to the2wayproject.com. While you're there, join the 2A Project. We'd like to have you on our side in the fight for constitutional freedoms under the Second Amendment here in Indiana and beyond. In the meantime, we're taking a break. Give us a call in this last segment. If we get to you, if we can get to you, we will. Oh, wait, you know what? We've got people already on hold that'll probably do us, and we'll wrap up this segment of the Gun Guy Show when we come back. So Sky Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back for what's going to be a brief segment here uh, to wrap up the Gun Guy Show. And I'll tell you what, we've had Brian on hold for a while. Uh, Brian, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Hi. How you doing? Good. Hey, uh, hey, thanks for taking my call, man. Sure. Hey, uh, I have a question. I am a homeowner in the state of Illinois, as well as Indiana. I'm interested in getting a permit in Illinois, but I have a medicinal marijuana card. That was they were. I've been told that I'm not. I'm going to be denied a gun permit. What what can you tell me? Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, the, <laughs> the the way the way the, the way the, uh, the statute reads is a federal statute, Brian, that says that um, you cannot uh, possess a firearm. And obviously, if you're a prohibited possessor, quote unquote, then you, you're not entitled to a license to carry in Indiana, uh, but you're prohibited if you're a user of or addicted to any illegal drugs. And the way the federal government interprets that, uh, and for instance, if you go in to buy a gun anymore and you fill out the 4473 form in the gun store, uh, it said when it asks you that question on the, on the form when you're buying a gun, are you a user of or addicted to any illegal gun, any illegal drugs? And uh, it says right there, parenthetical, it says, including marijuana, even in those states where it's legal. It may even say something about even with a medicinal marijuana card. So now what you have is by having a medicinal marijuana card, there is in some official registry, and I don't know how those works, because how those work, because we don't have them in Indiana. But now in some official registry somewhere, there's documentation that you are, in fact, a user of a drug that's illegal at the federal level under what's called the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. So when you would apply for your license to carry, I would assume that quest, same question, are you a user of or addicted to any illegal drug, appears on that application. It may not. I don't know. It's been so many years since I've applied for it, and I've not had this come up with any of my clients who have been denied a license. But... Now you're in a catch-22 because you can't say no because lying on the application, and not that I would, I'm suggesting that you would lie anyway, Brian, but you can't lie on the form because it's crime to lie on the application. You can't say yes because you just admitted you're a prohibited possessor and you're not going to get your license. If they simply don't ask you one way or the other, which may be the case, I've not heard of anybody uh, having this issue before, but if they simply don't ask you, then the question becomes, Will they find out? Will the Indiana State Police find out that, in fact, you have a medicinal marijuana card in Illinois? <laughs> That's a new one for me. 
I would be surprised if they did. It's not something I, I don't even know that they have access to, for instance, or um, that they would think to to run around and search whatever databases there might be, assuming they even have access to them, in every state where marijuana has been legalized or where they have medicinal marijuana. So really fascinating question. I'm glad you called in with that. But I, I, I'm pessimistic on your chances because of the way federal law works. And with that, we're wrapping up this week's edition of the Gun Guy Show. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you come back next week. This is Guy Relford 